You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. What if I told you that you owned a house in a city and that house was worth $200,000? It's a pretty nice house, right? You know, in my city, the median price is quite a bit lower than that. I know if you live in a, a big market, if you live in a New York City or San Francisco, that's not very much of a house. But for most of the country, that's a that's a nice middle class house. And for the city I'm talking about, this would be a nice middle class house, $200,000. And I come to you, your $200,000 house, and I say, look, I'm here on behalf of the city, the local government. We're going to do a project to fix the street in front of your house. Maintenance. Street's old. It's falling apart. It needs to be fixed. We're going we're gonna to do that. And when we fix the street in front of your house, we're also going to fix the sidewalk and the curb. And we're going to dig up the pipes and we're going to replace them. And we're going to make just basically everything new again, just in front of your place, right? We're going to do the whole street, but we're going to do in front of your place. And we're going to give you a bill for that portion that would be in front of your place, the the portion that is kind of exclusively yours, the stuff that we wouldn't actually be building if your house wasn't there. So this is essentially your share, your responsibility of what directly serves you. And at the same time we do this project and we send you this bill, we're also going to send you a bill for your share of all the communal infrastructure, all the stuff that you have a share in because you, you know, use and benefit from, but you don't pay for it directly. We're actually going to add that up and, and you're going to pay your share at this kind of one-time bill. You're going to pay your share of the interchanges, the traffic signals, the arterial roads, the, the lift stations, the water tower, the sewage treatment plant, the library, all these different things that comprise the, the buildings and the infrastructure and the, the major improvements of your city, all those things that need to be maintained, we're going to give you a, a kind of once every generation bill, once every 30-year bill for your share of maintaining all of that stuff. So we're going to come to you and do this project and give you this bill. What, what if I told you, now remember you have a $200,000 house, what if I told you that your bill was $200,000. Now, I've gotten into some theoretical discussions on the blog with a few people about this, but for the most part, I've asked dozens of people this exact question, this exact scenario over the last month, and I've yet to find anyone who didn't just laugh out loud. There's no way you would spend that money, and it's obvious, it's logical, right? If you have an investment that's worth $200,000, And now I come to you and say, in order for you to keep that investment, you have to invest another $200,000. There's no way you're going to do that. And and if it was a choice of you either do it or, you know, everything goes bad, you're actually going to move, right? You're actually going to, to put your money somewhere else because that is a really, really bad investment. What if I said that the bill was $100,000, half? 
everybody I've asked in the last couple of weeks has laughed at that too. So there's no way. There's just no way. It doesn't make any sense at all. I'm, I'm not going to pay that given the, the value of my home. I, I, there's no way that that makes any sense at all. I would be far better walking away from my house, even if I have substantial equity and investing that money somewhere else. It wouldn't make any sense. What if I said it were $20,000? Well, now people start to say, well, Chuck, no, I still am not going to pay that. I'm going to fight that. That's just absurd. Uh, that's crazy. I'm not going to do that. But you start to get a little bit of hesitation, right? Because now all of a sudden, you know, if I have no equity in that home, if I, right, if I, if the bank owns it, they're going to get the jingle mail, right? They're going to get the keys back in an envelope. And that's going to be it because that is an investment that doesn't make any sense. If I own, let's say, 50% of it, if I own 100000 of that $200,000 house and my mortgage is 100000 now all of a sudden, well, you know, okay, I'm, I'm in for a penny, in for the pound. You know, maybe it doesn't make sense for me to fight this one. Maybe I just got to suck it up and pay it because I'm into this thing so deep. I've, I've got to see it through now. So 20000 10% starts to get iffy, iffy, right? What if I said it was a $10,000 bill? Well, at $10,000, I start to have people nodding their heads. People saying, you know, I, I, I don't really like this. I don't think that this makes much sense. It feels unfair. But if, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. And I guess I'll, I'll figure out a way to do it. It's only when I get to $5,000 that people step back and say, yeah, I'll do that. That's a, that's a no brainer. Sure. If that's my share of it, you know, so be it. I'll pay for it. It's, you know, once a generation, once every 25, 30 years, I can pay five grand for my share of the communal infrastructure. It's not a big deal at all. Understand what this exercise does. It establishes in a rough sense, admittedly. I mean, I'm asking people theoretically, I'm not asking them to put their money down, but then again, nobody else is either. I'm asking people theoretically to help me establish a ratio between the level of public investment in the community and the level of private investment. And actually, I've, I've listed it the other way, private to public ratio. When you have a private to public investment ratio of one to one, this is the $200,000 house with the $200,000 bill for your share of everything that has been built from an infrastructure standpoint. People say that, no, we won't, that doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't. It, from an investment standpoint, it makes no sense. When we get to a, a two to one ratio, when the house is worth 200,000 and the, the bill, the investment is worth 100,000, we're still having people say, no, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. It's only when we start to get in the 10 to one range that you get a little bit of softening. And really, you don't get broad acceptance of people's willingness to pay until you get into a ratio of 20 to one to 40 to one. Now, incidentally, that 20 to 1 to 41, and we'll just, you know, split the baby and say around 30 to 1, is what we actually find when we start to look at historical places that were built in a traditional development pattern. When we start to look at the ratio of private investment to public investment, that's, that's about where we're at from a viable standpoint, right? 30 to 1. Let me tell you what your bill actually would be. You have a $200,000 house. 
And we've done this analysis now in a, a couple of different cities. And, and unfortunately, I'm not in a position to be able to name them. That will happen here in the next few weeks to a couple of months, depending on when we're able to sit down and, and share the data with the places we've worked with. But we have some explosive data to share. You have a $200,000 house. Your bill, when we add up not only the infrastructure that directly serves your place, but the communal infrastructure that makes the entire city run and operate, your total bill is going to be between $350,000 and $400,000. Not only do we not have a 30 to 1 ratio, not only do we not have a 10 to 1 ratio, we don't even have a 1 to 1 ratio, right? We have a 1 to 2 ratio. We are, as a community, massively, massively underwater. This is a macro representation of what I have seen over and over again in a micro standpoint. I wrote a few years ago the Growth Ponzi Scheme series of articles. And the thing that I put forward in those articles that was earth-shattering was this idea that when we started to measure development patterns at their base level, what we found is that none of it made any sense. We, you know, had payment terms that people just were unwilling, you know, infrastructure that had been put in at city expense or with the city having now an obligation to maintain it. And those developments wouldn't break even for 75 years. It would take the city that long to recoup the money that they would need to fix this thing. And, and the stuff would fall apart in 25 to 30 years. So the math made no sense. You know, when I started doing these analyses early on, I was very, very strategic about the kinds of developments that I picked because as an engineer, I understood that there's all kinds of, we'll say communal things that go into development. You put in a new subdivision and you only need eight inch sewer pipe, for example. But the city comes in and says, no, we want 12 inch sewer pipe and we want you to put it extra deep. You know, you could put it shallow and it wouldn't cost you as much, but we need you to bury it extra deep because we're planning for future growth up the road. Well, whose cost is that pipe? Is that the community's cost? Is that development's cost? So what I tried to do early on was say, I'm going to find segments that have none of that communal nature to them. There's no through development. There's no commercial development. There's no potential for future expansion. I'm going to find the places that are a sense at the end of the line, where the only thing that the public now has an obligation to service and maintain is stuff that serves only limited individuals. It's funny because even when I came forward with that early on in, in some of the cities that I was working with and started showing people how massively imbalanced this math was. The response that I got from a lot of the public officials was, well, yeah, but it's everybody's road. You know, everybody can drive on it. It's some dead end cul-de-sac out in the middle of nowhere that you would literally have to drive like two miles of back road to get to. Nobody would ever drive that road. Just like, well, let's take a Sunday drive and let's go drive down this dead end cul-de-sac. It just doesn't work that way. Yet, the pushback was so strong that this is communal infrastructure that we all pay for and we all benefit that it should be a, a public good. What I started to point out was how crazy this math was. And I mean, we found subdivisions where we were collecting 3% on the dollar of what would be needed to maintain this stuff. Or 3 cents on the dollar, 3% of what would be needed. The typical number was somewhere between 25 and 35%. 
And understand, this is where the stuff that had been put in was the bare minimum needed to serve this small group of people. I knew intuitively in my mind that everything else was way more out of whack than this. Like this was the best case scenario, right? And when we were able to kind of scale up and look at entire neighborhoods, we would see this pattern get even crazier because now you were talking about things that were communal, the, the larger street because it's an arterial, the interchange because it serves this broader area. Now we actually have data citywide. And now what we're seeing is that what we experience in the micro is magnified and reflected in the macro. And the ratio of 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 30 to 1, private investment to public investment, that makes sense, completely goes away and falls apart. And we are actually completely underwater in terms of our communities. I presented this a week ago to a group of academics. We were talking about this. Sometimes academics get it, sometimes they don't. This was a group of really smart people. And one of these guys is particularly brilliant. And right away, his response was, the city's underwater. Yeah, the city's underwater. Underwater, not literally, as in there's a flood. Metaphorically, in the sense that they do not have the wealth to maintain even a tiny fraction of what they have built. This is a situation that all of American cities find themselves in to one degree or another. And there might be places that are so financially productive, you know, a, a Manhattan, they can afford to have large bits of it that are not financially productive and it can, you know, make up for that somehow. But for the most part, our average American city is awash in public infrastructure obligations and liabilities and has gotten there based on cash flow and debt, not on the strength of their own local tax base and their own local economies. I spent a couple of weeks ago, I was spent a week in Oklahoma and experienced this over and over and over again. Places that had denuded their downtowns, had embraced fully the suburban development pattern, the auto-based development style, had just miles and miles and acres and acres of pipe and roads and streets and sidewalks that have so dramatically little financial productivity to them. I mean, you can look and see, obviously, that the places where you have buildings that have failed, where you have, you know, large amounts of space given over to stormwater ponds or just green space around an interchange right away, or you've got these huge spacing between buildings where there's nothing there. I mean, you can look at those, and if you have done any of this math at all, you can just, it just jumps out at you how unproductive they are. But we can even go to the places that don't have that, where actually the building form is what people would say, oh, this is, you know, this is good stuff, or we even got some density here, you know, we've got duplexes, um, or we got an apartment building, and, and you can just look around and see. The same kind of ratios come to the fore. The same kind of thing happens over and over again. I want to talk a little bit about this. This podcast is not going to be about the math. This podcast is actually going to be about looking back over the year to date. Because last week I ran a podcast featuring a New Testament scholar named John Dominic Croson. And I got a lot of feedback from you guys. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. 
I always uh, appreciate your thoughts and your feedback on the podcast, but not in the normal places, right? In the normal places on the podcast site and on the uh, the blog site where we share it, there's often a robust discussion around the podcast and people get back to them. They give comments and feedback and we talk about things. Those places were silent. I mean, like eerily silent, like everybody's like, what, what is this? My inbox, however, was not silent. My inbox, a number of people get back to me like, what is the Jesus stuff here, Chuck? <laughs> Have you gone off the deep end? What's going on here? I realized a couple of things. First, that we've come a long ways. Our podcast membership, like our blog membership, has been on a crazy, crazy growth curve. And where we were doubling our readership and our listenership every 10 to 12 months, that has accelerated a lot. And we've actually doubled our listenership in the last four months. We've doubled our readership on the blog in the last four months. It has been that kind of crazy. And that's wonderful. I think it's great that more and more people are hearing about the Strong Towns movement, are engaged in the Strong Towns message, and are part of this conversation. But some of it is actually, you know, lost on people because we, we've been having these kind of conversations for a long time. And by these kind of conversations, I'm talking about the question of what comes next. There are a lot of people out there today talking about the fiscal. And someone sent me a quote today. They said, you know, the, the fiscal is the new sustainable. For a long time, the buzzword amongst activist circles was, well, we want it to be sustainable. We want sustainable development, sustainable, sustainable, sustainable. And, and there got to be a certain point where everybody just roll their eyes. Like, what does this mean? What, what does this really mean? Because what you were hearing it mean was different things from different groups, right? The engineers, when the engineers would go build something sustainable, that would mean that you would use a 50-year design instead of a 30-year design, right? You would make it super, super big because then when, you know, all that stuff happened two or three decades from now that you just knew were going to happen, uh, you would have all the capacity there to handle it, right? That's sustainable. And of course, you know, by any definition of sustainable that I would be asked to come up with, it's the exact opposite of sustainable, right? But fiscal now and I'll take a little bit of credit for this. I think there are obviously many others. Our collaborator, Joe Minicosi, being foremost among them, have put the fiscal front and center of the conversation that we're having today. Fiscal is in many ways becoming the new sustainable. But if we want it to mean something, it actually has to mean something. In a Strong Towns context, let me say this with as kind a heart as I can and with as much compassion as I can. What financial means and what sustainable when you maybe mash those two together, it means that when you have an underwater city, it will not be maintained. When you have a $200,000 house and your bill for all of the stuff that is due that you are obligated to maintain as a taxpayer of that community is almost two times what the value of your house is, that will not happen. You will not spend that money. That money will not appear and will not be spent. If the money is not spent, the place will not be maintained. It will fall apart. It will go away. It will change dramatically. Dramatically. Financial as the new sustainable, if that's, you know, what we want to, to start calling it, the new buzzword that everybody wants to use. It does not mean building new green fields in a more dense way so that the numbers work out a little bit better. It does not mean going in and trying to make everything high density. At the end of the day, 
A lot of this is going to mean understanding what is happening in Detroit. Now, I bring up Detroit always at my own peril because everybody in this country has a narrative to explain Detroit. No matter who you are, and even within our own organization, we have people who will tell me, you know, oh, Chuck, you just don't get Detroit. <laughs> you know, and, and they'll point to, you know, one event or one trend or a series of events that explain Detroit, just like typify what it is, right? It was corrupt politicians. It was, you know, union fleecing of auto workers. It was the auto companies fleecing of the city and the, the worker. It was people leaving for the suburbs. It was white flight. It was concentrations of poverty. You can ascribe from the like most grotesquely racist rationale to the most mindlessly accounting-based rationale. People across the whole gamut have explanations for Detroit. Here's my explanation for Detroit. Detroit left itself no margin for error. Detroit left itself no margin for error. Detroit embraced, before anybody else did, the auto-oriented development pattern. And not only did they embrace it first, but they embraced it more aggressively than anybody else. And if there's one thing that we have shown about auto-oriented development, whether it is suburban greenfield development or whether it's urban neighborhoods that are retrofitted around the automobile, whether it is downtown, you know, hotels that lose three stories to parking, whatever it is, when you orient yourself around the automobile and you build these big, massive things in short periods of time, what we have shown over and over and over again is that they provide that short-term illusion of wealth. There's a period of rapid growth. There's a period of stagnation. And then there's a rapid period of decline. These are places that are not financially viable. So Detroit simply did this pattern first. They did it more aggressively than anyone else. And they arrived at the logical destination more quickly. This giving yourself no margin for error, it's fundamental to understand what that means. Because <laughs> I was working on uh, a conversation this weekend with some people in Memphis. And Memphis, of course, if you've ever heard the curbside chat, you probably heard me talk about the Memphis Pyramid, the big sports stadium they have that's now being retrofitted into a Bass Pro shop. And I, I got into a discussion with an advocate of that who was saying, you know, well, it's all state money. We don't have to worry about it. It's not our money we're playing with. And the $200 million in bonds that we've taken out locally is not actually spending money because it's all going to be paid back because the project's going to work out great and it's going to, we're going to recoup all our costs and we're in year one and we're already ahead of schedule. So it's, you know, everything's wonderful. And I, I get the same thing from some of the people in Carmel, Carmel, Indiana. Sorry. Uh, you know, the people there say, well, yeah, we built this uh, huge thing and we're spending all this money on growth and it's the new suburb and it's where all the rich people live. And, you know, our cash flow projections show that in 20 years, everything will work out great. In both of these situations and really in places all around this country, what we've done is we've given ourselves no margin for error. This is where that ratio comes in again, 40 to 1, 30 to 1, 20 to 1, 10 to 1, 1 to 1, right? When you have slack in the system, when you have high ratios, when you have 40 times the private investment that you have, the public investment, you have room to screw up. 
You can have a corrupt politician. You can have a project go bad. You can do some dumb things and not have your place implode, right? You can, you can weather that storm. But when you are too smart by half, right? When you are so convinced that you're right, when you are so convinced that you know exactly what you're doing, that you are willing to take out the maximum amount of debt that you can to keep propping up your place. You're so convinced that you have the business model down, right? What you do is you give yourself no margin for error. And if you are Detroit or literally, you know, any one of many thousands of cities around this country who believe that the auto-oriented style of development, the build it and they will come style of development, the oversize your roads and streets, fight congestion, get the big box store and suck all the wealth from every place around you. You you know, if, if you're buying into that development pattern, what you are doing is making huge investments and taking on enormous long-term liabilities and counting on you being perfect doing it. You're leaving yourself no margin for error. That's my story of Detroit. And so you can talk about unions being corrupt and public officials being corrupt, and you can talk about the decline of the auto industry or how you know NAFTA has caused jobs to go overseas. When you have an economy like Detroit's, and when you have made public investments as Detroit has, you can't weather any of those storms. Not only weather those storms, but have them come in sequence. It takes you out at your knees. You're done. This is the, I can't remember the psychological term for this. I, I looked it up. Oh, it's confirmation bias, right? It's the idea that we look out and, you know, you know, you know, you know, right? That back in the 1950s, there were cities that were pointing at Detroit saying, here's what Detroit did. Look at how great things are turning out there. We need to go do this. And of course, you know, nobody had ever done this before. And there was no, you know, alternative case studies and not a lot of people were looking ahead to see what this actually meant long term. So you have a confirmation bias, right? This is what we want to do. So we go around and we look for the place that is doing it. And then we say, this is what we should do. This is the conversation I was having with the Memphis people, right? A Bass Pro Shop. Uh, look at the places that have done this. It's turned out well. Of course, you know, that is a debatable premise, <laughs> especially long-term debatable premise. But nonetheless, they point to the ones that they see as success and they say that we're going to do the same thing and we will have the same kind of success. We leave ourselves no margin for error. So Chuck, why all the Jesus stuff? It's funny because I had John Dominic Croson on the podcast about a year and a half ago. I went back and listened to that one and I actually explained in the run up to the podcast a, a little bit of what I was trying to get out of it. So I, I think maybe I gave the listeners here, all of you, a little more context than I did this time. This time we just jumped right into the Jesus stuff. <laughs> if you didn't listen to or didn't make it through the podcast last week, I really recommend that you do so. John Dominic Cousin is a brilliant, brilliant guy. And, and one of the reasons I found his writing so inspiring is that he, as a scholar of the New Testament and early Christianity, what he has really done is he has dug into first century Palestine and tried to provide an understanding and a context to what we know today as Christianity, what we know as the Jesus movement, or as well, I'm Catholic, as what we know as, you know, our the teaching we get at church, right? He's he's provided the context of time. Why were these statements made? What did they mean to someone at the time? 
I'm going to use one example from the first podcast that we did that I, I think is a great, is a great, great example. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And we all, we all know this one, right? And the interesting thing is that we all today, whether you are Christian or not, know the story and associate Samaritans with good people. This is the Good Samaritan. Samaritans are good. You, you would like to be called a Good Samaritan. That is a honorable thing to be called in our society today. But if you don't understand the context of the time, you don't really understand the true meaning of the story. Let me tell you the story. There's a, a person who's traveling from one town to another and robbers fall upon him and beat him up and, and rob him and leave him dead on the side of the road. And a priest walks by and the priest sees uh, this person and, and walks around them. A Levite walks by and the Levite does the same thing. But then along comes a Samaritan. And the Samaritan actually stops and helps the person, gives them whatever immediate medical attention they can provide, brings them to an inn in the next town, leaves them at the inn, leaves some money for their care and tells the innkeeper, when I return, if there's any other cost that you've incurred in nursing this person back to health, I will gladly pay it. And Jesus says, who's the righteous person here? And of course, it's the Samaritan, right? And so we look today and we say, well, Samaritans are good people. And if you want to be a good Samaritan, but it's important, critically important to understand what was happening at the time and how people at the time that Jesus said this story would have heard it and would have understand it. Because of course, the first person to come by is the priest. And who is the priest? The priest is the temple priest, the, the highest authorities of the land, authorities that were in collusion with the empire at the time with Rome. And in many ways, suppressing and fleecing the population. They had very strict purity laws. If you touch someone who was bloody or, or dead, you know, that would be even worse. You became impure and you would have to go through all these different rituals to become pure again. So you could enter the temple and do different religious type worships. It was a system that really w was set up and interpreted to favor the elites at the expense of the poor. Last week, John Dominic Croson and I talked about the paradox of the belief system at the time where if something bad happened to you, it was an indication that you had done something bad. If you were immoral, bad things would happen to you. And so the, the converse of that was when something bad happened to you, well, we, we knew you were bad. You must have had some bad thoughts or done something bad that nobody knows about. And this is confirmation, right? So the priest would avoid this person, avoid them, because obviously they had done something wrong and they were impure. And by associating with them, you yourself would become impure. You didn't want that to happen. Next comes the Levite. And the Levites were, they were a tribe in Israel, a tribe ascribed with caring for the temple. They were many of the scribes you hear in the Bible talked about came from the tribe of the Levites. The Levites had a kind of privileged place in society. Again, very similar to the priest. Uh, the Levite would have the same concerns and would pass by for the same reasons. Now comes the Samaritan. Who's a Samaritan? And as John Dominic Croson described in the first podcast I did with him a year and a half ago, he said, well, this would be like the Al-Qaeda, right? This would be the enemy of Israel. This would be someone living in a foreign land next to you who is traveling through your land who you did not like. 
you did not like, you did not trust, Jews would not have held up Samaritans as being, you know, good people. We would, in the U.S. today, maybe look at these as Al-Qaeda, maybe look at them as Muslim immigrants, or, you know, I, I don't know what type of place they would have, but they would have a place where the general society would be suspect of them, would not hold them automatically in high esteem. So, Think about this message again now in that context. It's a, it is a radical, radical message. It's a message far beyond be kind to those in need. That's silly to think that that's what the message is. The message is that who is good? Who is right? It's not the authorities. It's not the kind of law as it's laid down. It's not the way that we as a society are set up and taught to value it today. What it is, is it's, it's a deeper human experience. The right person, the moral person is actually your enemy. If your enemy is doing the right thing and the people who you look at as being your supporters are actually your enemy. They're actually doing you a disservice. This is a massively subversive, subversive message. Why is it important for me in the context of going back to the beginning of this podcast, the, the ratios that I point out and the cities being underwater and Detroit being destiny for all of our cities that have put themselves in this location, given themselves no margin for error? It's really pretty simple. We are going to need each other. We're going to need each other really badly. This is something that's hard for me as an, as an engineer and as a planner to come to grips with. And it's taken me a long time to actually put this more prominently into the conversation. But the last couple of years, and actually I, I've done this from the beginning, but I think it's become more an obsession of mine the last couple of years. This understanding that we actually need each other. If your place is going to go Detroit and if you're listening to this podcast and you live in North America, it is likely that your place is going to go Detroit in one way or the other. And let me just pause here and maybe explain what I mean by that. You're going to have, if you're not already experiencing pockets of decline, those pockets of decline are natural. They are the byproduct of an auto-oriented development pattern that has all the value placed on building new and none of the value and no mechanism really to recapture and reuse old places, except for bastardized mechanisms like TIF and uh, other, you know, huge, massive government subsidy programs that themselves are not viable over the long term. We have this problem where, you know, your city will experience, because this stuff cannot be maintained, there isn't the wealth to do it, it won't be maintained. And you will have pockets of poverty that will grow and expand. Joe Courtright on the podcast a month ago talked about this, how we've gone from 1,100 census tracts to over 3,000 census tracts now that are in persistent poverty and persistent decline. This is a natural byproduct of the way we have built and the way we are building. As this takes hold, as this spreads, the affluent people will make logical decisions early on to move to places where their investments actually make sense to them. As that bar continues to creep up, in other words, as more and more people get trapped in the decline, more and more of the middle class will have difficulty being in that next step to move and will get trapped in the places that are in decline. We see income in disparities right now. We see massive wealth disparities, which are even more harmful than the income disparities. And 
I see that continuing to accelerate as this pattern matures and grows. We do not have the money to maintain everything we've built. And because of that, we won't. And the people who can through, you know, whatever means of acquiring power and leveraging it are going to ensure that their places are maintained and their places are taken care of. But the decline and the poverty is going to expand. I think this is destiny for much of America. If you are a Kunstler listener, you have heard him talk about this. He has written three fictional books. I've interviewed him on the last two. They paint a very dark picture of America. I don't have that dark picture in my mind, and I actually think that his view is an outside possibility, but I actually find his outside possibility to be more realistic than the, uh, you know, the Krugman, Keynesian, smart growth, Elon Musk, let's build, you know, solar panels and fuel efficient car, driverless cars and convert our skyscrapers into agricultural aquaponics labs. I, I find this just to be insane, right? I, I find that to be an absolute fantasy and, and Jim Kunzler's vision to have much more of a reality. I don't think we're going to end up in either of those places, but I do think that we are in for some difficult times. I don't think that the Great Depression is a bad model to look at. I also don't think that what happened to the inner cities during white flight, if we want to call it that, or during the suburbanization movement, I don't think what happened to our inner cities post-World War II is, is a bad example to learn from either. I just think it will happen in the opposite direction. I think that we will see the exurbs and suburbs hollow out, aka Detroit, and we will see pockets on the far edge where affluent people can essentially build a fire break and then rejuvenation in the core center where there's actually a chance to revive a development pattern that works in times of distress. So again, I'll get back to the question, why the Jesus stuff, Chuck? And at the end of the day, it's my way of describing a response that goes beyond the numbers that goes beyond the infrastructure, that goes beyond a government policy and acknowledges the reality that we need each other. We are going to have to learn how to live with each other. And I think the biggest fear that, that I have right now today is not that we will go through this and not that we will experience this, but my biggest fear is how we react to it. You can look at societies in the past that have undergone tremendous stress and strain and, and dislocation. I think the most recent example that is high profile, it would be Germany post-World War One. Germany post-World War One, of course, tried to set up systems to respond to the fact that in an armistice, they had essentially lost the First World War without really losing it. You had a military that was forced to downsize. You had political forces at play that were unable to resolve difficult problems. You had the rise of a very strong right facing off against the rise of a very strong left, both of them very far out on the fringes. You had, you know, state socialism, Nazism versus communism and the forces of moderation eventually gave way to one side. And of course, we all kind of intuitively understand the story that followed and the horrible things that came out of that. Humans 
in times of stress, do not always act in the best way possible. Even in this country after 9-11, you know, a, a horrible thing that I obviously lived through and was here and experienced along with many, many of you. But I remember in the, the days and weeks after, I mean, my wife would come home from work. She's a newspaper reporter and she would say on the scanner, there's a call to the police station that there's a Muslim guy standing on the corner. What is that? You know, what, what kind of a report to the police is that? When we're scared, when we're fearful, when we start to lose things that we think are rightfully ours, even if we don't understand the, the basis of that right or that claim, it is a natural human tendency, as John Dominic Croson calls it. It's the normalcy of civilization to resort to violence and resort to oppression and resort to the things that we can do and justify in our own minds to retain and keep what we have. We need each other. And if we're going to overcome, I think, the intellectual obstacles to actually building strong towns, building great places, building places where we can have a middle class and we can have the poor people that are helped and are able to make themselves better, and we have the American dream actually flourishing again, it's going to mean that we actually have to deal with each other again. Not by winning some national election, not by having our set of priorities dominate in Washington, D.C., but by actually getting back together and talking to people in our own neighborhoods, by actually resolving things in our own places. And that's going to be really hard, really, really hard to do. Bill Bishop wrote a book called The Big Sort that has really affected my thinking for many, many years now. I, I can't remember when the book came out. I want to say it was like six years ago. I read it right away, and it's it's just been one of these things that kind of altered my mental trajectory. The premise of The Big Sort is this. We are a very mobile society. As people move around, in, we're much more mobile than we were generations ago. As people move around today, they self-sort into neighborhoods of similarly minded people. And Bishop gives a really, you know, he, he has all the demographic data and maps and whatever to support this. It's His conclusions are rock solid, but he gives a story to kind of explain it. He says, you know, when he moved to Austin, Texas, he was driving around and he got to a neighborhood and it had a bunch of uh, cars up on blocks and people with NRA bumper stickers on their cars and a certain style of home that, you know, wasn't a neighborhood style of home. And he didn't even have to go look at the houses, right? He just said, you know, this isn't the neighborhood for me. And then he got to another neighborhood where the realtor was going to take him and started to see, you know, anti-war signs out in the yard, you know, picket fences in the front yard and people sitting on front porches and bumper stickers on cars that said different things and started to realize that, you know, this neighborhood feels a little bit more like my kind of place. Now, that says something about who Bill Bishop is. You may like that or you may not like that. But the reality is, is that we all do this, right? If we all move to a place, we look around and we see this neighborhood looks like us and this neighborhood doesn't. The thing is, is that when you dig into that, what you find is that we have self-sorted into neighborhoods of people who think very much like us. Thank you, modern zoning, right? We create subdivisions at one price point. We create styles of development that are discrete and unique from each other. If you move into an apartment, 
you're a very different person than, you know, generally on some of these important traits than if you move into the gated community with the large lot and the big three-car garage, right? It's a different demographic. The problem is that when we as humans speak to each other, we tend to normalize behavior based on kind of the median around us. You take 20 people in your neighborhood and put them in a room and have a conversation about an issue. And if you all tend to generally agree on it, whatever it is, you will have find people who are extreme in that belief and people who are more moderate in that belief. But what you find is that the median tends to skew far to one side or the other. Let me do the issue of guns, okay? Let's say that you, you know, move to one of these neighborhoods and, and you've self-sorted and it's a whole bunch of people who think that the Second Amendment is about regulating militias and people should not have the right to own guns and guns should be regulated and permitted and all this. You will sit in a group of people in that neighborhood and there will be people who say we should confiscate all guns in this country. And the very conservative position will say, well, we think, you know, people should have guns, but they should be registered and permitted and we shouldn't sell certain kinds of ammo and certain types of firearms should absolutely be banned. Now let's go to a different neighborhood, a different place that's been self-sorted. And you'll find a, a group of people who the extreme on one side will say, not only should we have conceal and carry, but we should have open carry. In fact, I think people should be required to own a gun, have a gun in their house, and they should be allowed to carry it wherever they want, whenever they want. And the extreme position on the, on that side towards moderation would be, well, you know what? I'm not for conceal and carry, and I'm not for open carry of guns, and I certainly don't think people should have to own guns, but I, I think people should be able to own a gun if they want and have it in their house, and I think if someone breaks into your house, you have a right to shoot them. So these are, in America, two different neighborhoods with two kind of radically different points of view. Think now of who the moderate person in each of those neighborhoods would be. The moderate person in the one neighborhood that opposes guns is going to be a, a radically, radically, you know, far one side of the equation from the moderate person in the other neighborhood. Because we have self-sorted, because we have generally allowed ourselves to not only not be around people who, you know, look differently than us, but I think even more destructively, people who don't think differently than us, people who don't see the world in a different way than us. What has happened is that we've allowed our own echo chambers to dominate our view of things. We've allowed the own radicals and, and you know, moderates in our neighborhood to define what normal is in vastly different ways and in, in micro neighborhood kind of ways. This is really, really unhealthy. And it's particularly unhealthy when it reflects up to the state and national level. When you have, you know, two political parties that are literally nuts, they're crazy and they can't talk to each other because they are crazy. And I don't care what political party you affiliate with, your political party is crazy. They have crazy people in it who think crazy things who are not able to talk to and have a conversation with the other side because the other side is just equally crazy. We, if we're going to fix this, have to talk to each other and not on Crossfire and not on MSNBC and not through talk radio. We got to talk to each other in our blocks, in our neighborhoods. As we, uh, you know, had a podcast last year with Dave Runyon, you know, who's your neighbor? 
do we meet those nine people that live next door to us? Can we fill out that tic-tac-toe board and actually know who they are and know something about them? That's the level that we're getting down to here. And so I have John Dominic Croson on because this conversation of what it means to be a neighbor, what it means to know your neighbor, what it means to resist injustice and domination and violence is something that we have to have a conversation about in this movement, in this country, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, because we are going to go through some very difficult times. And if we react to those difficult times with the normal reaction of civilization, right? The normalcy of civilization, we react to it by, you know, and I'll, I'll give the worst example of my own Catholic church. You know, if, if we react to it with inquisitions and by, you know, saying people are going to be cast out of our faith because they don't believe the same things we do, or we start drawing lines on who can be included and who can't and who's righteous and who isn't and who's saved and who's not and who's good and who's bad. All of a sudden, we are going to have a really, really hard landing. If, on the other hand, we can start to talk to each other, we can resist the urge to blame others for what really is a national consensus. We were not forced in the 1940s and 50s and 60s to build the way we did. We were not forced in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to take on massive amounts of debt to prop all this up, right? We were not forced in the 2000s into making our financial system into a bunch of predators in order to continue this whole Ponzi scheme and pretend that we could keep it all going, right? We weren't forced to do any of this stuff. We did this because this was our national consensus, This was what we thought was the right thing to do. If we are going to turn around now when this all goes bad on us and blame the most disenfranchised and unfortunate among us for our problems, we're going to be in a world of hurt, a world of hurt. And we are not going to recover from this anytime soon. So what I've tried to do last week and what I will continue to try to do amongst the really important conversations we're having about financial solvency and about the way we build and structure our neighborhoods, about how we have anti-fragile systems. Amongst all those conversations, I also think it's important that we just talk to each other, that we get to know each other, that we make a concerted effort to listen and understand, particularly people who don't think like us, particularly people who don't maybe fit in with what we think is the way things should be. I'm not some saint and I'm not standing here pretending that, that I'm like a model of this in a lot of ways. I'm doing this kind of thing for myself, the Croson books that I've read and the other similar books and the the research I've done. It's a, it's a passion of mine because it's a weakness of mine. It's a shortcoming of mine. I, I am more comfortable being an engineer It is a far more comfortable, it takes far less courage for me to sit down with a spreadsheet and project out 30 years and use my gift to be able to speak and write to, you know, make people confident that I know what I'm talking about and I have the future all planned out. And if you just follow me or subscribe to my plan, I can make it all work. That would be far more comfortable ground for me. And there would be many people who would call that courageous except I wouldn't call it courageous because it is not acknowledging 
the deeper problems, the fact that we don't really know what's coming. We just know that it's not going to be a continuation of what's going on now. We know that when something is insolvent and cannot be maintained, that it won't be maintained. And we have some models like Detroit that are giving us an inkling of what this is going to look like as this deformation starts to unwind, as things start to go back to a real normalcy. And it scares me. It scares me. Because I believe that this is a great country. I believe that we are great people. I believe that we can do great, great things. But we're not a great country. And we're not going to be a great people. And we're not going to do great things if we allow ourselves to devolve into, you know, the kind of reactionary tyranny that you saw in a Nazi Germany. That sounds kind of crazy. And I know there's a, I can't remember what the law is, you know, the first person to bring up Nazis, whatever. I'm not saying that at all, because I don't think that's necessarily our destination either. But I do think that we're going to go through some difficult times. And the important thing is that we be able to talk to each other, to talk to each other, to have adult conversations, to be able to figure these things out so that not only can we get on with the task of building strong towns, which is going to be a hyper-localized kind of undertaking, but so that we can emerge from this transition we're going through as a better people, a happier people, a more successful and prosperous people. We got to talk to each other. If there's one thing to take out of that podcast last week, it's that. When I start with ratios and I say, you've got a $200,000 house and your bill is going to be $400,000. What I'm trying to help you realize is that that's not a solvable problem. That's not a problem solvable by taxing policy or spending policy. That's not a problem that is solvable from Washington, D.C. That's not a problem that, you know, if we just have the right liberal administration or we just have the right conservative administration, we can get the right laws passed and we can get this all on the right track. If we just build some high-speed rail or if we just, you know, quit building high, whatever, whatever it is that's your fantasy is not going to solve this problem. This problem won't be solved. And so the only way we deal with this problem is by starting to talk to each other. Because the solutions to these problems, or as we call it at Strong Towns, the rational responses to these problems are going to come from us in our neighborhoods, in our places, figuring out what a rational approach is and making that work. The sooner we get started with that, the better. Thanks, everybody, for listening this week. Thanks for <laughs> the feedback. I really do appreciate it. You all hang in there and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.
I got a question for you. What does this city know about luxury? Huh? What does a town that's been to hell and back know about the finer things in life? Well, I'll tell you. More than most. You see, it's the hottest fires that make the hardest steel. Add hard work and conviction and the know-how that runs generations deep in every last one of us. That's who we are. That's our story.